Hello, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemary Ankwe, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Community Voice, Associated Press, Beyond Bylines, Blavity, Ebony, Fort Worth Star-Ledger, Arlington Magazine, The Root, and The Griot. The first article is from the Community Voice and is titled African Americans on the USA 2022 Olympic Team, February 6, 2022. African Americans and first-generation Africans have a scarce yet rich history competing at the Winter Olympics, from figure skater Debbie Thomas to bobsled athlete Bonetta Flowers and speed skater Shawnee Davis. This year, the team is rather sparse, down from 2018 Olympics that had 11 black athletes. Here's who we could find on the USA 2022 Olympic roster. What's holding back more African-Americans from competing in Winter Olympic sports? Leading reasons are geography. You need to live in cold weather states. And if you do, there are travel expenses for competing, equipment expenses, and lack of representation. Think what seeing Venus and Serena out there did for tennis. For James Edward Mills, a prominent black outdoors writer, it comes down to the snow industry, devoting advertising and marketing resources that target people of color. After all, this will only benefit the winter sports industry in the long run as the nation becomes more diverse and wealth among racial groups becomes more evenly distributed. Most likely to medal this year, Speed skater Aaron Jackson, 29, was a longtime inline skater who transitioned to speed skating full time and in just 12 months qualified for her first Olympic team in 2018. Her selection for Team USA makes Jackson the first black woman to qualify in long track speed skating for the United States and the second woman, Mame Biney. M-A-A-M-E, Biney, B-I-N-E-Y, on either speed skating team. She won gold in the 500 meter in the recent World Cup, beating out the then gold medalists. Strong contenders, speed skater Mami Biney, 22, will be competing in her second Olympics. Disappointingly, she didn't place that year but she's back after a couple of injuries, more determined than ever. Unlike Jackson, has been a competitive speed skater for years. She competes in the 500 meter short track. Bobsled Elena Myers Taylor, 37, will be competing in her fourth Olympics. Myers Taylor previously earned Olympic bronze at Vancouver in 2010, silver in Sochi, in 2014, and a second silver at the 2018 Pyeongchang Olympics. She has widely been viewed as a gold medal contender at the 2022 Games, hot off 
a 2021-22 bobsled World Cup season. Her husband, Nico Taylor, is an alternate on the U.S. men's bobsled team at this year's Olympics. Bobsled Sylvia Hoffman, 32, was first discovered and recruited for the national bobsled team from the second season of the next Olympic hopeful. She was officially given a spot on the U.S. bobsled team after participating in the national team trials. During the 2018-2019 World Cup season, she received bronze with partner Elena Myers-Taylor. Before bobsledding, she was a college basketball player and participated in weightlifting. Bobsledding Keisha Love, 24. Despite growing up in snowy Salt Lake City, Love found her way to bobsledding from competitive college track and field. She earned a spot on the USA 2024 women team bobsled team, beating out three prior Olympians. She will also compete in the two-woman bobsledding competition. Bobsledding, Hakim Abdul-Sabur, 35, is a former college football running back who took up bobsledding after a video of him jumping up and touching a ceiling with his head caught the attention of a Team USA strength and conditioning coach. He competed in the two-man event at the 2018 Winter Olympics, and he qualified to represent the USA at the 2022 Winter Olympics. This article is titled African Americans on the USA 2022 Olympic Team by the Community Voice Writers, February 6, 2022. The next article is titled Golden Moment, Jackson First Black Woman Speed Skating Medalist by Paul Newberry, N-E-W-B-E-R-R-Y, Associated Press, February 13, 2022. Erin Jackson bolted off the line, her powerful legs attacking the ice, her destiny awaiting at the end of a frenetic dash around Beijing's magnificent speed skating oval. She didn't view herself as some sort of trailblazer. She didn't think about the slip that could have snatched away her spot on the U.S. Olympic team. She simply wanted to go faster than everyone else. I came here to win, the 29-year-old said. Mission accomplished. Jackson became the first black woman to win a speed skating medal at the Olympics, and it was the best color of them all, gold. A lot of shock, a lot of relief, and a lot of happiness, Jackson said, after her victory in the 500 meters. It was an immensely personal moment for an inline skating champion from Balmy, Ocala, Florida, who traded her wheels for blades in order to chase an improbable Olympic dream. Jackson was the first black woman to qualify in long track speed skating for the United States, and the second woman, Mamie Biney, the other, on either speed skating team. Biney, 22, will be competing in her second Olympics. Disappointingly, she didn't place during her first Olympics, but she's back after a couple of injuries more determined than ever. Unlike Jackson, Biney has been a competitive speed skater for years. 
She competes in the 500 meter short track. This article is titled Golden Moment, Jackson First Black Woman Speed Skating Medalist by Paul Newberry, Associated Press, February 13, 2022. The next article is titled Congratulations, L'Oreal Benitez. You've been chosen as the first recipient of the Community Voice slash Koch Industries Shift, Pivot, Thrive Award. Therapist Shifts Finds Success for Her Business and Clients by Bonita Gooch, G-O-O-C-H, The Community Voice, February 17, 2022. When the pandemic hit, L'Oreal Benitez, owner of Benitez Counseling, LLC, had customers whose lives literally depended on her. When Wichita closed down and everyone was told to stay home, she knew that wouldn't work for her patients with the most severe problems. Benitez is a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist, as well as a licensed clinical addictions counselor who specializes in areas where few therapists seem to tread. In addition to substance use disorders, she specializes in treating people with eating disorders, perinatal mood disorders, such as postpartum depression, and working with individuals suffering from trauma and individuals struggling with any type of loss or who have experienced any type of traumatic incidents in their lives. Some of these people are often on the cusp of breakdown, harming themselves or even committing suicide. And she knew many of these individuals couldn't make it months or even a week without therapy. So she continued meeting with her most in need customers, spreading out their office visits to leave time to sanitize in between. There wasn't a quick fix for COVID-19. So Benitez began looking for a way to help her other customers and a way to save her practice. She turned to teletherapy. Teletherapy wasn't a new thing prior to the pandemic, but it was a service that I didn't offer at the time, said Benitez. Some of her patients took a wait and see attitude about teletherapy. Most of them were uncertain about what teletherapy care would look like, said Benitez, who admitted the transition required her to make adjustments as well. After a while, most of her customers bought into the idea, with very few exceptions, found it worked just fine. In fact, most of them found it both convenient as well as COVID-friendly. They didn't have to leave their home, saving them the time and expense of traveling to her office. In addition, some of the patients found it more comfortable talking to someone in their own home or speaking to them virtually. In some ways, people feel a little more protected or safe or can be a little more vulnerable if they're sharing through a computer screen, said Benitez. Teletherapy wasn't the only change experienced during COVID. Demand for her services increased exponentially. In part, her business grew because there were very few therapists specializing in her more difficult areas of practice. Her practice also grew in general because the pandemic proved mentally challenging for a lot of people, and a lot more people found the need to turn 
to a professional for help. In addition, her business grew because telehealth made her accessible to more clients. Individuals could meet with her at their office over lunch hour or at home without having to find a sitter. I'm able to reach clients in rural areas that may not have had access to quality mental health care before, said Benitez. And then, also due to my specialties, I'm able to reach populations where they may not have been a therapist who may specialize in perinatal mood disorders or eating disorders. Another way her practice grew was from an increasing number of black clients. She was pleased to see a growing acceptance of therapy by African-Americans, who she said were definitely looking for therapists they could relate to culturally. One of the common things that I hear very often when clients seek me out is, I want a therapist I can relate to. I would like a therapist that understands cultural differences, says Benitez. So I do tend to get a lot of those clients in my practice. She eventually had more clients than she could handle, and in response to the need for culturally connected therapists, she developed a directory of African-American therapists in Wichita. It was an unselfish step that helped patients, but also helped other black therapists in the Wichita metro area grow. Certainly, her business also grew because she proved helpful to her clients. It's one of the major ways Benitez measures the success of her business. Beyond the growth in her client base and her growth in revenue is growth in her patients. One of the greatest things that I love to hear whenever I'm working with clients is, L'Oreal, I have nothing to talk about today, she said. And usually my response is, that's great, because that means you're doing well. It means you're thriving. It means you're accomplishing your goals. This article is titled, Therapist Shifts Finds Success for Her Business and Clients by Bonita Gooch, The Community Voice, February 17, 2022. The next article is titled, Fort Worth Green Book Exhibit Focuses Jim Crow Era Traveling Through a Local Lens by Megan Cardona, C-A-R-D-O-N-A, updated February 11th, 2022. A new exhibit called Fort Worth and the Green Book opened at the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History on Friday, highlighting the Jim Crow era travel guide used by Black Americans through a local lens. The Green Book originated in the 1930s during the rise of the automobile by New York City mailman Victor Hugo Green. As a guide for Black travelers to avoid dangers and difficulties on the road in the United States, Canada, and Mexico, and to enhance the road trip experience. According to the Texas Historical Commission, the travel guides were published until the late 1960s. The guidebook includes hotels, service stations, and restaurants, along with tips on good and bad parts of town. 
At the start of publication, the guide only covered the northeastern portion of the United States, Reinberg said, but later included other areas and cities nationally, including Fort Worth. The exhibit opened 67 years after the museum's Board of Trustees issued a memo for plans to desegregate its exhibits and galleries. The museum's classes and activities were still segregated for years after the decision because of Texas state law. Museum chief scientist Morgan Reinberg said bringing the Green Book exhibit to the museum shines a light on the hardships Black Americans faced in the Jim Crow era and how those experiences were not long ago. There are still people alive today who experienced these difficulties, Reinberg said. This is not a story of the ancient past. This is a story of our parents and our grandparents and the experiences they had in travel. Reinberg said museum staff knew from the beginning stages of planning that they wanted to bring in an outside expert to help curate the exhibit. Frederick W. Gooding, Jr., chair of the Race and Reconciliation Initiative at Texas Christian University, took up the call. Starting out, Reinberg said museum staff had a top-down view of the history. Having Gooding on board helped fill in the gaps with focus on the lived experiences of Black Americans during the time period. It's an opportunity to share our American history, Gooding said. It's not just Black history. In order to tell the story, remember, many Americans were involved, not just Blacks. It wasn't just Blacks driving around in a car with a green book because they wanted to. It's because they were interacting with a larger environment. Gooding said he saw the exhibit as an opportunity to make a painful topic accessible to members of the community, especially the youth, without watering it down. Fort Worth and the Green Book includes an immersive theater with a video of Gooding explaining more about the Green Book, a photo booth with backgrounds of Fort Worth places in the travel guide gives visitors an opportunity to place themselves in the time period of the Green Book. Because families make up the majority of visitors at the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History, Reinberg said staff wanted to make the exhibit family-friendly to encourage conversations of the past in the context of a road trip, something kids can understand. There is no intense imagery in the exhibit. Instead, the gallery guides includes sets of discussion questions for different ages and an interactive map challenging kids to plan a road trip with enough food, gas, and rest before their next stop. Gooding said he learned about the Green Book through family informally, but never received a full historical foundation of it until he went to graduate school. It wasn't a topic he was taught in K to 12th grade. We're looking to rupture that cycle because if you aren't exposed to this information earlier, you might start to think differently as a result, Gooding said. 
What's happening now in many of these race conversations, we're passing each other like ships in the night. This article was titled, Fort Worth Green Book Exhibit Focuses Jim Crow Era Traveling Through a Local Lens by Megan Cardona, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, February 11th, 2022. I was privileged to attend a special program titled Traveling While Black by the McLean Community Center in McLean, Virginia. The next article discusses the program further. Its title is Virtual Reality Film at McLean Community Center Presents Immersive Look at Racism. Traveling While Black exhibit takes visitors inside Ben's Chili Bowl to view candid conversations about discrimination. January 4th, 2022 by Eliza Tabo, T-E-B-O, Arlington Magazine, January 4th, 2022. If you step into the McLean Community Center anytime soon, you may find yourself at a table inside Ben's Chili Bowl. Traveling While Black, an exhibit that opened last month and runs through February 12th, 2022, offers an unflinching and immersive look at racism towards Black Americans. The 2019 virtual reality documentary, directed by Oscar winner Roger Ross Williams, utilize Oculus headsets to transport participants into the legendary DC restaurant. From the vantage point of a booth or seat at the counter, viewers become privy to candid narratives from native Washingtonian Sandra Butler Truesdale, civil rights activist Cortland Cox, and Samaria Rice, whose son, Tamir, was killed by a white police officer in Cleveland in 2014. The roughly 20-minute film is the first virtual reality exhibit for the McLean Community Center. Recently installed executive director, Daniel Singh, S-I-N-G-H, who has served in arts administration roles in Baltimore County and Montgomery County, worked with the exhibit creator, Center Phi, in Montreal to acquire the exhibit after a three-month run at Georgia Tech. We really think about the community center as the center of it all. And for us to build a community, I think empathy is the key, Singh says. Everything is so polarized in the media right now, and people just look at statistics and numbers. And we wanted to find a way to connect people back to the stories to the humans. In the film, Butler Truesdale, a DC historian and fifth generation Washingtonian who grew up in a segregated neighborhood, recounts the indignities of train travel for many black people in the 1950s. Though she was allowed to sit where she pleased on a train within DC boundaries, she had to move to the rear car once the train crossed into Virginia and was not permitted to eat or use the restroom facilities while on board. When the train stopped, 
you would get off the train and you would relieve yourself outside, almost like you would if you were a dog, Butler Truesdale says in the film. I see people treat their dogs better now. Right now, they treat their dogs better than they treated us as black Americans. Ben's Chili Bowl, initially in its former incarceration as a pool hall, was one of the thousands establishments nationwide and internationally to be listed in a guide for black travelers called the Negro Motorist Green Book. The book was a key plot element in the 2018 film Green Book. In 1936, Harlem-based postal worker Victor Hugo Green created the guide, updated annually, that became a necessity for black motorists aiming to avoid the many dangers of travel from harassment to death. In the film, Cox, C-O-X, an organizer with the 60s-era student nonviolent coordinating committee and current chair of its legacy project, describes taking a bus through the South shortly after Fannie Lou Hamer, H-A-M-E-R, and other civil rights activists traveling through Mississippi were jailed and beaten in 1963. To minimize the threat to his own life, he packed a lunch and avoided deboarding the bus during the 10-hour ride. Though the 1966-1967 Green Book was the final edition, published six years after Green's death and two years after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibited racial discrimination, Cox notes its continued relevance. The assumption is, at some time, racial discrimination stopped. And that's not the case. It never stopped. That's a continuous thing that hasn't changed since the beginning of the relationship that exists here between blacks and whites in the United States, Cox says in the film. Young black people don't have the green book in front of them, but they have it in their head, where you're no longer looking at no Negroes allowed and stuff like that, but you're looking at the same thing which says, these are barriers here. And then people feel that if you cross these barriers, they have the right to kill you. In addition to traveling while black, the McLean Community Center is hosting a series of performances and discussions through the winter and spring that aim to foster inclusivity or address racial injustice. On the weekend prior to Martin Luther King Jr. Day, Patrons can attend a concert and conversation with blues and boogie-woogie musician Daryl Davis, who has persuaded some 200 members of the Ku Klux Klan over the past decade to leave that hate group. Before visitors depart traveling while black, they have the option of filling out postcard side reflection cards. Each has a prompt such as I feel and I will. Completed cards may be added to a public display alongside the exhibit. We want to create a space where people feel comfortable sitting down and talking about difficult things and being able to walk away with no perfect resolution, says Singh, who is also planning virtual and in-person discussions 
or exhibit viewers in January. It's hard work. It's going to be difficult. But not doing it is going to be much more devastating. This article is titled Virtual Reality Film at McLean Community Center Presents Immersive Look at Racism by Eliza Table, Arlington Magazine, January 4th, 2022. The next article is from the cover of Ebony Magazine, special edition in partnership with Olay. The title is A Seat at the Table. Who's Got Next? The winners of our Olay and HBCU STEM Queens contest, of course. These 10 dynamic and beautiful minds are confirmation that the future is indeed young, black, and female. Story by S. Tia Brown. Elena Annalee Wicker, age 13, hometown, Dallas, school, Oakwood University, major, biological sciences, year, sophomore, STEM goal, cardiothoracic surgeon. Why STEM? I've always thought, why can't girls of color do STEM and pursue jobs in STEM like others? I've always believed that girls of color can do anything in STEM that they put their minds to. So I created the Brown STEM Girl to give STEM opportunities to girls of color. Wow achievement, getting into college at age 12. Bookmark, author of Brainiac World, Two Days of Affirmations for Smart Girls. Stemflex. Being the youngest person to intern at NASA. Favorite hobby, singing. Best advice ever received. Never give up. The sky isn't the limit. Skin hack. A clean face. Why she admires mathematician Katherine Johnson. I love how she puts her mind to do something. And even though she was told she couldn't do things, that she knew she could, she kept going. Kristen McGowan, age 21, hometown, Chicago School, Xavier, Louisiana, major, pharmacy year, doctor of pharmacy, candidate, STEM goal, pediatric clinical pharmacist. Why I STEM? Growing up, I always knew I would be a doctor. I vividly remember walking around with a stethoscope in my hand saying, I want to be a pedestrian, pediatrician. HBCU Advantage. At Xavier, we're not just numbers. We're stakeholders investing thousands of dollars into our education. Therefore, our university is dedicated to pouring just as much into us. Stemflex. While interning at the University of Missouri, Columbia, a few years ago, I contributed to the fluorescent staining protocol for muscle cells in mice models. I worked relentlessly to find the antibodies and staining materials to perfectly stain each muscle. The postdoctoral student I worked under and I were able to finalize a protocol 
that the lab would use moving forward. Jamira Franklin, age 22. Hometown, Prince George's County, Maryland. School, Spelman College. Major, Health Science. Year, Senior, STEM Goal. Physician, Scientist. Why I STEM? I STEM because women's health is extremely important to me and I want to be a change agent in the health field. Growing up, I witnessed both of my grandmothers battle breast cancer, and it really affected our whole family. I believe we need to increase the representation of black women in STEM, especially in the medical field, so that we can achieve healthy equity. Notable accomplishment. I'm the first woman in my family to go away to college and pursue STEM. Favorite black female STEM character. This may sound a little corny, but Doc McStuffins. I think having that representation at a young age was really important. Growing up, I never saw a black doctor on TV. Black woman STEM role model, Dr. Dorothy Brown, the South's first black woman surgeon who served as chief of surgery at Nashville's Riverside Hospital. Words of inspiration. To all the black girls who want to go into STEM, you can do it and you belong here and you're made for this. This article was an excerpt from the cover title, A Seat at the Table. Who's Got Next? The winners of our Olay and HBCU STEM Queens contest, of course. These 10 dynamic and beautiful minds are confirmation that the future is indeed young, Black and Female. Story by S. Tia Brown. Special edition of Ebony in partnership with Olay 2022. The next article is titled Master Class Offering Free Class About Black History in Honor of Black History Month by the Community Voice, February 17, 2022. Streaming platform. Masterclass is providing free classes in honor of Black History Month. The class, called Black History, Black Freedom, and Black Love, will be taught by seven Black intellectuals Jelani Cobb, C O B B, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, C R E N S H A W, Angela Davis, Cheryl Ifill. I-F-I-L-L, Nicole Hannah-Jones, John McWhorter, M-C-W-H-O-R-T-E-R, and Cornell West. The free class is possible due to the $2 million commitment Masterclass is making to create content that inspires and educates people about social justice and fighting against systemic racism. The course, broken into three parts, covers 400 years of racial history in a total of 10 hours. Part one, the past, delves into the relationship between slavery and American capitalism, white supremacy and the 14th Amendment, and the history of voter suppression and education equality. Part two, the present, examines the origin of critical race theory, the historic Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court case, and the legacy of Thurgood Marshall. 
Part three, the future, addresses how members can apply what they've learned to create a just society. You can begin watching Black History, Black Freedom, and Black Love right now. The class will also eventually be available to stream for free on IMDB TV and available for all Prime members through a distribution partnership with Amazon. This article is titled, Master Class Offering Free Class About Black History in Honor of Black History Month by the Community Voice, February 17, 2022. The next article is titled, Beverly Johnson Returns to a Changed Catwalk by Associated Press and the Madison Journal, February 16th. 2022. New York Associated Press. Beverly Johnson has a simple answer for why she decided to walk the runways of two designers showing at New York Fashion Week. Johnson, 69 and a grandmother, is one of the original supermodels. As a black woman, she broke barriers and widened the conventional ideal of beauty at the time by appearing on the cover of American Vogue in 1974. Her career soared and she became a sought after face for decades, gracing the covers of hundreds of magazines. Johnson, also an author and businesswoman, returned this week to her modeling roots and strutted the runways for designers Sergio Hudson and Bibuhu Mohapatra. She was the last model to walk in the Mohapatra show on Tuesday, and the crowd clapped and cheered when they recognized her. Wearing a white flowing gown, sleeveless on one side and accented with a black flowered lace sleeve on the other, Johnson smiled as she slowly took her turn down the runway. The look included a dramatic, long, billowing black cape that she flipped as she made her turn. She admitted she needed a little practice before the show. After I took that walking lesson, I was fine. It was a wonderful, beautiful experience, Johnson told the Associated Press backstage after the Mohapatra where onlookers crowded around her taking photos. As a fashion trailblazer, she's moved by today's push for more diversity and appreciation of different cultures in the industry. All the models in the Mohapatra show were models of color in honor of Black History Month. And you're going to make me cry right now, Johnson said, tearing up. In 2024, it will be my 50th anniversary of that historic cover of being the first black woman to grace the cover of American Vogue. It means a lot to me, this show and Sergio Hudson's show the black designer who is just making leaps and bounds in the fashion industry. It's just wonderful to see this, she said. I didn't have this when I was coming up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Johnson participated in many fashion weeks over the years and says she enjoys spending time with the younger models backstage. She found them beautiful, elegant, and wonderful but she noted one big difference between them and her contemporaries. 
The girls are much taller. My Sergio show, I mean, there was no one under six feet. Usually before, it was like 5'10", and that's enough, she said with a smile. This article was titled, Beverly Johnson Returns to a Changed Catwalk by Brooke Lefferts, L-E-F-F-E-R-T-S, Associated Press, February 16th, 2022. The next article is titled, Students Could Receive On-The-Spot Acceptance to HBCUs Through Black College Expo by Dante Ramos, Blavity News, February 17th, 2022. Dr. Teresa Price, P-R-I-C-E, the founder of the National College Resources Foundation, is excited for her students to see that they have access to higher education after graduation this year. Many recruiters from historically Black colleges and universities came to Linwood High School to speak with eager seniors about their future. Students surveyed two dozen HBCU recruiters and had a possibility of being accepted on the spot with $3 million in scholarships. Today is about letting students know that regardless of their background, where they're from, higher education is available. Access to higher education is here. We're here to help them navigate. We're here to help connect them to college careers and beyond, Dr. Price said. This coming Saturday, the organization will hold another in-person college fair at the Los Angeles Convention Center. The 23rd Annual Black College Expo will be from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and is an in-person opportunity for students to waive application fees and win a scholarship. This is life-changing for our community. We are here to make sure college is accessible, affordable, and is not a dream deferred, said Patricia Bent Sanko, S-A-N-C-O, of the Linwood Unified School District. Seniors learned new things from the expo. Some expressed that they had never heard of an HBCU and were more interested in applying after speaking with the Linwood recruiters. I wanted to open up more opportunities for myself, so I actually didn't know HBCUs were a thing. And now that I've heard of it, that sounds pretty cool, Yuzel Gomez said, a Fireball High School senior. Some 94% of Linwood students are Latino, but Dr. Brent Sanko wants them to know HBCUs are for everyone. Their mission is to support students and ensure students have the best academic environment, Franco Sanko said. About 200 acceptance letters were offered on the spot, with some receiving full-ride scholarships as well. This article is titled, Students Could Receive On-The-Spot Acceptance to HBCUs Through Black College Expo by Dante Ramos, February 17, 2022. The next article is titled, U.S. Virus Cases, Hospitalizations, Continue Steady Decline, by 
Lee Willingham, and Jonathan Matisse, Associated Press, February 20th, 2022. Average daily COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations are continuing to fall in the U.S., an indicator that the Omicron's variant's hold is weakening across the country. Total confirmed cases reported Saturday barely exceeded 100,000, a sharp downturn around 800,000 five weeks ago on January 16th, according to Johns Hopkins University data. In New York, the number of cases went down by more than 50% over the last two weeks. I think what's influencing the decline, of course, is that Omicron is starting to run out of people to infect, said Dr. Thomas Russo, professor and infectious disease chief at the University of Buffalo's Jacobs School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. COVID-19 hospitalizations are down from a national seven-day average of 1,460,534 on January 20th to 80,185, the week ending in February 13th, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention COVID Data Tracker. Public health experts say they're feeling hopeful that more declines are ahead and that the country is shifting from being in a pandemic to an endemic that is more consistent and predictable. However, many expressed concern that vaccine uptick in the U.S. has still been below expectations that are exacerbated by the lifting of COVID-19 restrictions. Dr. William Schaffner, S-C-H-A-F-F-N-E-R, of Vanderbilt University's School of Medicine, said Sunday that the downturn in case numbers and hospitalizations is encouraging. He agreed that it likely has to do with herd immunity. There are two sides to the Omicron coin, he said. The bad thing is that it can spread to a lot of people and make them mildly ill. The good thing is it can spread to a lot of people and make them mildly ill because in doing so, it has created a lot of natural immunity. However, Schaffner said it's much too early to raise the banner of mission accomplished. As a public health expert, he said he'll be more comfortable if the decline sustains itself for another month or two. If I have a concern, it's that taking off the interventions, the restrictions may be happening with a bit more enthusiasm and speed than makes me comfortable, he said. My own little adage is better to wear the mask for a month too long than to take the mask off a month too soon and all of a sudden get another surge. Officials in many states are cutting back on restrictions, saying they are moving away from treating the coronavirus pandemic as a public health crisis and instead shifting to policy focused on prevention. During a Friday news conference, Utah Governor Spencer Cox announced 
that the state will be transitioning into what he called a steady state model starting in April, in which Utah will close mass testing sites, report COVID-19 case counts on a more infrequent basis, and advise residents to make personal choices to manage the risk of contracting the virus. Now, let me be clear. This is not the end of COVID, but it is the end, or rather the beginning, of treating COVID as we do other seasonal respiratory viruses, the Republican said. Also on Friday, Boston lifted the city's proof of vaccine policy, which required patrons and staff of indoor spaces to show proof of vaccination. This news highlights the progress we've made in our fight against COVID-19, thanks to vaccines and boosters. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu said via Twitter, Dr. Amy Gordon Bono, a Nashville primary care physician, said now is not the time to lessen vaccination efforts, but to double down on them. In the spring of 2021, when vaccines were becoming more readily available, the U.S. was eager to declare COVID independence, she said. Then came the Delta and Omicron surges. Bono, who attended medical school in Tulane University in New Orleans, said the U.S. should approach COVID like hurricane season. You have to learn to live with COVID, and you have to learn from it, she said. One challenge is that each region has a unique landscape, she said. In the American South, for example, many restrictions have been lifted for a while, or never existed in the first place. Yet it's also a region with relatively lower vaccination rates. We've suffered so much, and if there's a way to help appease future sufferings, it's having a more vaccinated community, she said. Russo said he sees two possible future outcomes. In one, the U.S. experiences a fairly quiet spring and summer while immunity is strong. He said, in that scenario, it's likely immunity will wane and there will be a bump of new cases in the cooler months during flu season, but hopefully not a severe surge. In the second, the one concerning public health experts, a new variant evolves and evades the immunity wall that was built up from both the Omicron infections and vaccinations. Whether a variant can evolve is the big question, right? He said. That is the concern that we'll have to see through. Omicron was the first version of that. And there is this sort of adage that, well, over time, Viruses evolved to be less virulent, but that's not really true. Viruses evolve to be able to infect us. This article is titled, U.S. Virus Cases, Hospitalizations, Continue Steady Decline, by Lee Willingham and Jonathan Matisse, Associated Press, February 20th, 2022. The next article is a special segment by the National Geographic titled, The Search for Lost Slave Ships Led This Diver on an Extraordinary Journey by Tara Roberts, National Geographic, February 7th, 2022. I dive in. The water is cool against my skin, the silent absolute, and as I hover 
over the remains at the bottom of the sea, I feel peaceful, thankful, a sense of coming home. Descend under water with me, not too deep now, maybe only 20 feet or so, and you'll see about 30 other divers paired in sets of two. They calmly float in place, despite strong currents, off the coast of Key Largo, Florida, sketching images of coral and crusted artifacts or taking measurements. I am, we are, mapping the remains of a shipwreck. Most of the divers are African American. We're training as underwater archaeology advocates, gaining the skills necessary to join expeditions and help document the wreckage of slave ships being found around the world. Ships such as the Sao Jose Paquet de Africa in South Africa, the Fredericus Quartus, and Christianus Quintus in Costa Rica, and the Clotilda in the United States. An estimated 12.5 million Africans were forced onto ships like these during the transatlantic slave trade from the 16th to the 19th centuries, according to Nafis Khan, N-A-F-E-E-S-K-H-A-N, a professor in the College of Education at Clemson University and advisor to the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database. It took at least 36,000 voyages, he said. 1,000 or so ships likely sank. Enter Diving with a Purpose, a group that trains divers to find and conserve historical and cultural artifacts buried deep in the waters. Since its founding in 2003, DWP has trained some 500 divers to help archaeologists and historians search for and document such ships. The group's goal is to help Black folks in particular find their own history and tell their own stories. This story is also available as a podcast. It's a six-part podcast series, Into the Depths, and it explores the complex history of the global slave trade and the stories of the estimated 12.5 million Africans forced to make the Middle Passage. Listen on Apple Podcasts. When you are African-American and you're diving on a slave ship, that's a whole lot different from someone else doing it, says legendary diver Albert Jose Jones, a co-founder of the National Association of Black Scuba Divers and board member of DWP. Every time you go down, you realize basically two things. One is that maybe your ancestors were on the ship. The other thing you realize is that you have a history. Your history didn't start on the shores of the United States. It didn't start with slavery. Your history started in Africa at the beginning of time, the beginning of civilization. The National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. showcases DWP's work as part of the Slave Rex Project a network of groups that uncover and document the remnants of slave ships and work to tell a more inclusive history of the slave trade. Diving with a Purpose members are using their skills to dive to help us find the stories that are buried under the water. 
says Lonnie Bunch, B-U-N-C-H, the third, the museum's founding director and secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. In some ways, there's so much we know about slavery, but there's so much we still don't know. And I would argue the last frontier is what's under the water. Lounging on a return trip, you might hear lead instructor Jay Hagler's H-A-I-G-L-E-R booming voice and his trademark cackle. And you might see the twinkle in his eye and his infectious joy when he says quietly before nodding off, this is what I live for. And it might, and it just might touch you. This ends the first part of a story titled The Search for Lost Slave Ships Led This Diver on an Extraordinary Journey by Tara Roberts, T-A-R-A, National Geographic, February 7th, 2022. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Rosemary Ongway. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.